0: I like you now to turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We continue on in our series in this important letter in chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. In recent weeks, as we focused on marriage, we tried to emphasize an important truth, that every single believer in Christ, whether single or married, male or female, is ultimately wed to Christ who is our true husband. Well, as we turn our attention to other matters of of authority and relationships within the working world of labor and commerce, we find a similar principle emphasized, recognizing that our labor is not for a boss or for an employer, but ultimately for Christ, who is our one true Lord and Master. All of our work aims to please Him. Regardless of what other people think, regardless of whose approval we get or don't get, we ultimately are seeking to please one, our true Lord and Master. Keep that in mind as we read chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the true master. You are the one worthy of our respect, our obedience, our diligence, and all of our labor. And we would ask tonight that you might give us a heart of wisdom as we consider these words and apply them to our hearts and to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. During the summer of 2003, as I was finishing seminary and waiting for a call, ...to go serve a church, which turned out to be here at Westminster. I took up a job with a professional house painter. A man who would regularly hire seminary students in the summertime... ...when his workload would increase. And he hired several of us to work on painting mostly outside work. And painter Tom had such a good reputation that he had more than enough work that he could handle. He would schedule many, many weeks out in advance. Now, Tom was not the cheapest painter, but due to his workmanship, his integrity, his reputation, people are willing to pay a little extra and wait a little longer knowing that he would get the job right based upon good referrals from others. I learned how to paint from a master. How to paint correctly, cleanly, and quickly. I was always amazed at the end of the day when the other hirelings and I would be done with our job and we'd be covered with paint and Tom, who would cover twice as much area than we had covered, and would not have a drop of paint on him. Incredibly efficient and done with excellence. Tom was the kind of worker and leader who would not make excuses for mistakes. He would fix the problem to the satisfaction of the customer each time. And uh, he was tested at one point in the middle of the summer when his brother, who also had a painting business of his own, fell from a ladder and was seriously injured and hospitalized. And Tom had to step back from his work to attend to his brother's needs and his brother's family and continued to give us direction in his absence on those days. And it was just amazing how we still got things done, even under the great strain that Tom was under. We continued to get paid, continued to keep the work flowing, and uh, I have the, mo- the highest regard for this man, one of the best employers I have had the privilege to work for. Tom was a Christian. And he exemplified integrity in my mind of what a Christian worker is called to do. Now, not all of us, and maybe not even many of us, have had the privilege of working for somebody that they can highly esteem. Work in a fallen world is cursed. There are employees who, employers who abuse their authority. There are employees who, who cut corners, who do not continue their labor when their boss's eyes are not upon them. And sadly, there are Christians who fail to apply the implications of the gospel, who neglect to put into practice the biblical teaching that should govern our speech, and our work, the way we run business, and the way we render our labor and service to others. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he was riding into a situation where there, there was a new dynamic, where in a world of slaves and masters, many of them were coming to faith in Christ, and people in the church were seeking guidance on how to apply the gospel to this new situation. Now there are those in our day who are zealous for human rights, wonder and ask why Paul seemed to condone slavery. Why did he tolerate, why does Paul not say more against the practice and institution of slavery? I would like to address that topic briefly before I dive into our text more directly. Because as I read these passages and as we compare it, especially to Paul's letter called Philemon, I believe there's an established principle. There's a foundation being established that provides us adequate resources that we have hence adopted in the history of the church and in many ways in Western culture. That is the eradication of slavery. The elimination of this practice based upon what the Bible fundamentally teaches about God, about human nature, and about human relationships and ownership. Yes, Paul does seem to acknowledge the the status quo that in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was a very common practice. Millions of people were enslaved, especially in the large metropolitan areas of the Greco-Roman world. Many of these people have been grafted in or have been conquered peoples from the greater Mediterranean area and Europe and Africa and Asia. But as the gospel is going forward with great power, as communities are being transformed by the grace and forgiveness of Christ, social dynamics changed. The the recognition of how to use authority begin to be marginalized against the abusive practices that were common of that day and begin to acknowledge a true authority that comes from God and God alone. In fact, I would like to make a parallel comparison of the elimination and eradication of slavery, although you don't see it nailed down in our New Testament. You see a pattern developed that, that parallels in some sense to the elimination of polygamy. I believe there's a common parallel as we study Scripture. We will recall how in the book of Genesis, God's design for intimacy between a man and a woman was one man one woman in the covenant of marriage. And that a man having multiple wives was the farthest thing from God's mind until human rebellion and sin entered into our world and brought forth a proliferation of immorality and, and abusive practices. We would point out that in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, that while the Bible seems to condone or tolerate polygamy to some extent, there are negative example after negative example And many times the Bible teaches by way of negative example to show us how deviation from God's standard and design brings forth severe consequences. You'll notice notice that in the the law of Moses. that, That when Moses institutes the law, he regulates the practice of polygamy. Why? To guard and protect the vulnerable from abuse to protect lesser wives from neglect or abuse in their precarious situation they find themselves in. Historically, we know that at some point after the Babylonian exile, the practice of polygamy was pretty much eradicated from Jewish culture. There was a restoration of one man, one woman as the common practice in marriage. And so when you find in the New Testament writings, you have Paul addressing the issue in the Greco-Roman world, establishing a standard of male headship and male leaders and ruling elders in the church that men were to be a one-woman man. And in many ways, that teaching was applied to Greco-Roman paganism, forbidding men with multiple wives to serve as leaders in the church, Well, just as we see a progression of restoring the biblical standard that cuts across society beginning within the church, I believe we also see that in the issue of slaves and masters. As the New Testament is drawing to a close, the clear implication of the gospel is that believing masters are to set their slaves free. And this is nowhere more clear than in Paul's letter to Philemon who apparently is a son in the faith, a man who either was converted by Paul or who was under Paul's ministry influence. And the situation is this. Philemon, a slave master, has had a slave named Onesimus run away and has come under the influence of Paul's preaching and teaching and has converted. And in his letter back to the master, Paul while he could have been bold and he says it clearly in the letter i could be bold and command what is required of you but for love's sake i make an appeal and begins to help help fleeman to adopt and appropriate the grace of god to understand what the gospel would call him to do to relinquish control to let go of this authority structure and begin to embrace the power and grace of the gospel And not only to forgive and receive his slave back who had committed a crime against him, but to embrace him as a brother and to grant him his freedom. I embrace a a truth that uh, scripture in many ways is is more radical than it is revolutionary. And it's intent and designed to bring transformation to broken cultures. That the power of truth and the grace of the gospel is intended to be salt and light, transformational and radical. Not in a, in a violent, revolutionary way, but in a truly powerful way, in a servant-hearted way, in a gracious, kind, compassionate, bold way. That puts the truth before people and turns their hard hearts away from the stubbornness of sin, the stubbornness of control and abuse, and sets them free to do what God would have them do to treat their fellow man, their fellow men and women with dignity and with respect. So, having said that, Paul who is explicitly addressing slaves and master in this text, I believe is addressing us today as well. In a a day, in an age, in a culture where we do not practice slavery, where we do not accept this practice that is still exercised in other parts of the world. And while some people may feel that they work for a slave driver... And no matter how much your boss may resemble Pharaoh, we need to rejoice that we live in a democracy and enjoy freedom and working relationships that are entered into by will and by contract. And so these principles that Paul gives to the church at Ephesus apply to employees. They apply to employers. I believe it gives us a lot of guidance as we consider the very nature of work as God has designed it for our gainful employment. You know, the attitudes that prevail in our work in these days are similar to the mantra, live for the weekend. Wake me for the weekend. Work hard, play harder. A man was asked by his wife at the end of the day how his work had gone that day, and he said, One day, closer to retirement. I believe that's sad. And I believe that that's an attitude that is unfitting those who would proclaim to follow Christ. Those of us who have an inheritance that could never perish, spoil, or fade away. I believe we're called to have a more positive attitude towards work. And if we consider the biblical teaching, we need to recognize that, first of all, work is a gift of God. That work was first instituted by God in creation before the fall. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were commissioned to work the garden, to till the ground, to care for the animals. Work itself is not an evil intrusion into God's paradise. Rather, it's an integral part of how we're called to fulfill God's purpose for us. Rather, it's the consequence of sin, of our selfish rebellion that we now live in a world under curse and it's by the sweat of our brow and painful toil that we must provide food, shelter, and enjoy the conveniences of modernity. Our family enjoys watching the episodes of the 1970s show Little House on the Prairie. We have most of the seasons on DVD. And we watch these episodes that do a good job of, of focusing in on that era in the 19th century of American frontier life, uh, of the riskiness and, and, the dan- and the danger of life and work in that time as pioneers and frontiersmen were developing new land under very harsh weather conditions. It was oftentimes a risky economic situation, and you see episode after episode of, of the strain that the working environment places upon families and communities, forcing them to rely upon God and one another. And sometimes we watch these episodes and we can, can become nostalgic in our day when we have so many conveniences with improved transportation and communication technologies, with agricultural uh, of advancements that are drought-resistant, have the benefits of modern medicine, mitigating the risks of life that threaten so many of our forefathers. And yet, with all of the benefits of modernity, In the the way in which work today is so much better than it was back then, there are many, many people today. People with good educations. People with high earning potential. People who have established a comfortable standard of living. Who still are oppressed with a deep sense of dissatisfaction with their work. And while I can't resolve all those issues tonight. I want to challenge all of us to think about our gifts, our experiences, our opportunities, and how we have been designed and prepared and equipped by God to serve and be productive in his world. I believe every Christian should ask themselves this question, where can I be most useful for the kingdom of God? Only a few of us are called to what we call vocational ministry, pastors and missionaries who who depend upon the generosity of others to do their work of preaching and teaching. Rather, most believers are called to be workers, to be tillers, to be employees, to be employers, to be producers and caregivers for the benefit and blessing of society. See, we have a, a wonderful cultural heritage as Presbyterians, as Protestants. The, what came out of the Protestant Reformation hundreds of years ago was a restoration of the dignity of work, that all of work is sacred, is a calling from God to pursue a vocation a vocation that brings glory to God and service and benefit to one's neighbor out of love for them. Much kingdom work is supported by the skilled and productive labor of faithful servants. If you find yourself dissatisfied tonight in your labor, in your work, perhaps you might find other means of employment. Or perhaps you might examine your attitude. You might ask the Holy Spirit to scrutinize your heart's desires to give you a new perspective of what it means to labor for the glory of God and for the good of others. Well, now as we dive into the verses of our text, I'd like you to recognize a couple of themes. One is the the recurring theme of integrity, that, that God's workers are called to exercise and practice integrity, and they are called to render their service not ultimately to man, but ultimately to God. And this applies both to those who are workers and those who oversee the work of others. Now, in the opening verse, as Paul is addressing slaves or those who are subordinate, those employees under the authority of others, we are called to render obedience or to show respect in a spirit of fear and trembling. And this phrase is used in at least two other places. In the first, Paul commends the church at Corinth for receiving and responding to Titus, one of his disciples in receiving his ministry with fear and trembling, demonstrating respect and reverence and appreciation for his work. That phrase is also used to describe the believer's submission to God and our calling to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it's expressed in Philippians chapter 2. So what does it mean to fear and tremble? Uh, You may have heard me say before in this pulpit, That I'm a big fan of Tony Dungy, who was not only won a Super Bowl Bowl as an NFL head coach, but I respect him not just because he won a Super Bowl, but for the manner manner in which he led his teams. Tony Dungy had a reputation for rarely ever raising his voice and almost never uttering a swear word. His players and his staff did not fear his temper. Their greatest fear was disappointing him, letting him down. They had such love and respect for him as a man of integrity that they wanted to do everything possible to please him. And that's one of the reasons he was such a successful coach. He got the best out of everybody. I believe that's the idea here. For us to go about our work with fear and trembling doesn't mean to grovel or to be fearfully intimidated. Rather, it's to have such a high regard for those in authority over us that we, that we are dreadfully afraid of not meeting their expectations. That can be a hard task. If we have a difficult boss who is very demanding, We can think in a literary example of Bob Cratchit who demonstrates fear and trembling in the way he respected Ebenezer Scrooge, even defending him against the attacks and assaults of others behind his back. We're called to respect and love those, even those whom are difficult to please. Paul helps us as we consider what it might mean to render our service with fear and trembling before a cranky employer, someone who micromanages us, someone who may say hurtful and painful things to us or about us. How do we do so? Well, Paul, he answers that question at the end of verse 5 when he offers, doing out a devotion of heart as you would do for Christ. If one's boss is an unbeliever, Or demonstrates poor Christian virtue, someone that is difficult to respect. The believer has all of the resources that he or she needs in Christ. And what we render to a boss, whether a believer or unbeliever, is offering back to them what we have already received from Christ. It's easier to perform well for a teacher, or a coach, or a boss who respects us and loves us and encourages us. And yet when that is lacking, we are still called by Christ to be motivated. To render our service, to look beyond that person's flaws, to see Christ calling us to give it our all. To not make excuses for ourselves, to, not, to avoid cutting corners to serve for more than a paycheck, a raise, or a promotion. Friends, we are not mercenaries. Rather, we are servants of the high king, called to represent him, for it is his reputation that's at stake in the witness we bear, in the way we go about our work. Verse 6, Paul elaborates that our hard work, is, our, our labor is to be done not just when the boss's eyes are on you, and not just in a manner of seeking to please men, but rather out of devotion to God from the heart. It's a recognition that even when our employer has, does not have his eyes on us, God always has his eyes on us. You've no doubt encountered coworkers who would frequently put their best effort when the boss is near, or when the deadline is looming, but then slack off when no one's watching, or when there is no sense of urgency. When I played high school football, we called such characters Wednesday Warriors. Wednesday was the last day of practice before Thursday games. And for those second-string players who slacked off Monday and Tuesday, they would give it their all on Wednesday when the coaches were watching and making their decisions for who would start in Thursday's game. But the smart coaches knew. They knew who were play-acting, and they knew who they could depend upon to perform well in game time, those who had put in the work all the time, even when the coaches were not watching. So my question for us tonight is, are you a hard worker? Are you trustworthy? Do you earn your compensation? Are you laboring to bless your employer? Or are you only looking out for your own interest? Is your work and your labor God-centered? Or is it merely man or self-centered? One of our favorite Movies is the Christian film Courageous. Our children have watched it several times. It's basically a, a story about policemen in a in southern town that are trying to be, become better husbands and fathers. And uh, one of the best and most heartwarming characters is a Latino man named Javier. He is a husband and a father who is struggling trying to find work when he is blessed with his network and connections to find a good job at a manufacturing plant. And Javier's hard work and competency is noticed by the executives of this company. And as the chiefs are looking for someone to fulfill a management position, they ask Javier if he would be willing uh, to consider a management position. Well, Javier said, yes, of course, I would love that position. And so the chief officer gives him a test, telling him that there will be an inventory coming, he'll have to do inventory on an upcoming shipment. But then Javier is given a test within a test. He is asked by the boss to be untruthful in the way he records the number of shipments in the inventory. And Javier is he wrestles with knowing what is unethical and probably illegal, has a day to decide whether or not he will accept the position and do what he is being asked. And even though he knows that his family could desperately use that money, and even though he knows that he could possibly lose the job, he has now by turning down this offer in in keeping with his integrity. He tells the boss that he cannot fulfill that request. Well, much to Javier's surprise, the chief grins because Javier had given him the answer that he was looking for. You see, they had so many managers who were corrupt. They were looking for a man whom they could trust, a man of integrity, a man who would not give in to the fear of man but would stick to his principle regardless of the consequences and whether it would harm his situation. I believe that Joseph in the book of Genesis was such a man. He was dependable, so dependable in the house of Potiphar that Potiphar did not have a care in the world only for the food that he ate. And though Joseph goes on to suffer many trials and hardships. He rises through the Egyptian prison system, elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh to govern Egypt during a terrific crisis, of famine. You see, Pharaoh needed a man of integrity. He needed one who was not given to bribes or abusing others, one who would keep Egypt safe during a very dangerous and vulnerable time. Are you the kind of person that your employer can trust? Are you training your children to have a work ethic, to contribute to society, a society that is degenerating deeper and deeper into selfishness and ethical crises? The world needs salt and light. It needs people of integrity to work and to serve. Recently, I was at Costco with my children, and one of our errands was to purchase several supplies for the concession stand that we run for our Little League Baseball organization. And I did not notice until after I had checked out and was halfway across the parking lot that the checker had failed to scan two of my products, totaling about $15. In that moment, I had a choice to make. Would I keep going, or would I turn back? And while many people, people who would never shoplift, never even dream of shoplifting, would just keep going, I realized that before God and before my own children, and before my Little League baseball organization, I had to go back in. And even though it was inconvenient and not time effective i went back in and insisted that they charge me for those extra items i don't share that with you to pat myself on the back but i use it to illustrate that you and i have have little decisions to make almost every day and we need to ask ourselves what are we living for are we living to get just another another edge are we living just to maximize our own benefit and profit? Or are we living in such a way that is pleasing to God, that is a blessing to other people, that is not just a good example for our children, but a way that, that testifies the kind of life, the kind of grace-filled life that we have the privilege of bearing as we follow Christ? Sadly, I have experienced Christians, and even experienced this in my own heart, of taking grace for granted, of almost abusing forgiveness with an entitlement mentality. Well, this is my father's world anyway. Why should I be held accountable to its rules and regulations? We're not called to live like spoiled brats in this world. We're called to live like sons and daughters of the king and to be a witness and a testimony. And so I want to challenge myself and all of us to live in such a way with impeccable levels of integrity. The little things matter. How we use our time. How we spend our money. How we return and respond to the needs and requests of others. Speaking the truth in love is important. You see, where it matters, where it applies is at the corners and at the margins. Where it matters is in the little things. It's in the final couple hundred yards of the marathon. It's in the fourth quarter. It's in the ninth inning that all of your training and your preparation, your commitment are truly tested. We may be tempted to borrow without permission, to shirk the accountability of others, to yield to the pressure from others of to not work too hard and make others look bad. But rather, we are called to be a people of integrity, who admit mistakes, who do good to difficult bosses, who always give our best effort. In Little League Baseball, we have a pledge that's been around for 60 years. It says, I will play fair and strive to win. But win or lose, I will always do my best. And every time that our little leaguers give that pledge, I think about shaping men of integrity and character who will always do their best. Do you always do your best? And if not, what do you need to throw off that hinders so that you may run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us by Jesus Christ? Well, as we near the end of our text, we consider that Paul gives the same challenge to masters and employers and challenging masters to realize that they are also under the same authority as the slaves. All those in authority need to recognize that their authority is on loan from God. And God, who is a God of justice and righteousness, Burns with indignation towards those who abuse that authority and oppress the vulnerable. Righteous masters or employers are those that respect their limits. Who do not live out and establish in their working environment, living like little kings. Rather, are those who admit fault, who own their mistakes, who show empathy towards their employees, who apologize. Not taking themselves too seriously, and never asking an employee to do anything they hear she would not be willing to do themselves. Even as we try to establish this high standard of integrity, it's important to note that no one's measure of integrity will ever merit one's entrance. Into heaven. You and I both know that there are unbelievers who have impeccable integrity. And yet, they have not received the merit of Jesus Christ. And even the very best of us all have cracks in our integrity. All of us have work ethic weaknesses. Every single one of us cut kingdom corners and we have not rendered our service to the king in a way that he truly deserves. No, there is only one worker who has fully met expectations. There is only one who was always on time, who never complained, who completed every task with excellence, who carried the load of others when they could not carry the load. There is one who did go the extra mile who pleased the boss when all others had failed. Friends, you and I deserve to be fired. To be fired forever. You and I don't make the pay grade. We are not qualified. We do not measure up. We have squandered our opportunities. We do not deserve a callback or a second interview. There is only one who has earned it in our place. And thankfully, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our master, is the one who became a servant to do the work of a servant, to do the work that you and I could not do to deliver us from eternal firing. And friends, the good news of the gospel is not only that we are not fired, and it's not that we are just now hired You and I are now part of the family business. We have been hired on. We have been grafted in. We have been included. We are now partners in the grand mission of kingdom work that our Father has been pleased to share with us. Friends, you and I are like the prodigal son who was not just hired back as a hired hand but embraced and restored as a son. Live and work and labor and serve with that humble and gracious and glorious joy of the redeemed as we render our service not unto men, but unto our gracious master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for grafting us in. We thank you for including us in your work to be part of your kingdom, to be partners in the family business of making known the glory and the riches of Christ to those who are lost and fired. I pray, O Lord, that you would equip us and strengthen us for the task ahead we might live as free people, to live for your praise and honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.